Heavenly Father, would you guide my words? Would you open our hearts and ears? We would be transformed more into the likeness of Christ. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. The parable of the ten bridesmaids. It's always fascinating coming at the beginning of a week to a passage and you read it for the first time and you go, I have no idea what this means. And not only then do you have to figure out exactly what it means, you then have to let the passage change you and shape you and you have to sit with this passage all week so that you know it to a degree so that I can then stand up and explain it. And then when we come to the end, how does this work itself out? It's things that I've had to think through and shape. And so no matter what I say, I just want you to know that I've been sitting with this passage all week. So it's been doing work in me all week. And I hope that it does work in you too. Because it's, it's a strange passage. And I think the question that the passage poses for us, this, this parable, is this. Are we, you and I, are we truly waiting for the return of Christ? Or do we appear to be waiting for the return of Christ? And that is what, that's the question that all of us have to ask ourselves, in our hearts and in our minds. Because it doesn't sound like much, does it? The difference between truly waiting and appear to wait. So what's at stake? Well, the way that we respond to that question, everything is at stake. Our whole eternity is at stake. So it's a big, big thing to get our heads around. So it's going to be enjoyable, I think, in our own way. Now, this is a parable. And like all parables, Jesus has given us a story that is not perfect. It's not fully formed. It's not like a novel that ties up everything that we want it to. It doesn't explain everything. He's given us a snapshot of a story to make a point. And it's a point about the kingdom of God. It's a point about spiritual things. It's a point about fundamental truths. And so it's very easy for us to read this story or hear this story and go, well, it hasn't answered that question. Snapshot of a story for a specific point, for a specific reason. And it's the story of a wedding. There's a bridegroom, we're told about, and then there are ten bridesmaids, and they are part of the bride's party. And as we go through the story, we'll work out who is who and what is what, and at the end, we'll work out how should it affect us, what should change. Now, in Matthew... Jesus is currently having a warning season. In Matthew 25, he tells three parables. Bang, bang, bang. And afterwards, what's going to happen? He's going to be betrayed. Calvary and the cross is at the forefront of his mind. And he's telling his disciples before he goes to his death about his return. Not his return as as a resurrected Christ, but the return of when he eventually comes as judge. King of kings, as Lord of lords, as he ushers in eternity, as he comes back as the groom to collect his bride, the church. Now, all the way through the Bible, in the, in the Old Testament, you heard about how God was the 
groom and Israel, his people, were the bride. Think of Jeremiah and Hosea. And now that's kind of been transformed into calling Christ the groom and the church the bride. So when we hear this story and we think of the groom, we know that Christ is talking about himself, that one day he will return in this way. And then we have 10 young women who have been invited to the wedding. Now, the way this works from what we can gather is that a man and a woman were betrothed to each other. Now, don't think of engagement that being betrothed, you had to get a formal divorce to kind of break it off. So it's very significant. And at the end of the betrothal, on the wedding day, one of two things would usually happen. The groom would be in his father's house, and he would go with his family, and he would go with his friends, and he'd walk through the night, and he would go to the bride's house, and he would collect her, and he would call out to her. And then they would be married there and then, and then they would return to the groom's father's house for a party, and this party lasted days. Think of Jesus turning water into wine. Why did the wine run out? Because this had lasted days. The other thing that often happened with the groom would do the same thing with all of his family and all of his friends, and he'd go to a specific place where his bride was going to wait him. And the bride's party were there waiting for him. And there they would be wed, and then they would return for the massive party. Now, I thought that I should get a kind of light as a candle, and so I got, I found, I, I had this as a kind of um, a little torch. Um, and then I found this in the back, and I thought, that's much more exciting. So, um, so here we are. So you've got to imagine, right, th this is not London. Okay, so there's no light pollution. This is pitch black. And what this did, what happened, the groom would leave at night. So think about it. All of his family and all of his friends are there with their lamps. And they're supporting him. It's quite romantic, you know, when you think about it. They're all here and they've got their torches and they're walking to the bride. And then what is he welcomed with? Light. All of the bride's family and friends, they're all there waiting with their torches. Now, what happens in our story? They get there. The bridesmaids are there waiting for the groom. And then what do they do? They fall asleep. Why would they? Surely that's the parable of the story. Don't fall asleep when the groom's coming. Now think about it. If modern day you had um, the, the, the wedding is predominantly about the bride. Everyone's really excited about it. In these days, the groom was the big deal. So they're all there waiting for the groom and they fall asleep. And Jesus is saying, by saying that they fell asleep, is that's okay. As you're waiting for the groom, as you're waiting for Christ, life carries on. You go to work. You go to sleep. You do play. You're not just kind of standing there, just staring at the sky, being like, oh, Christ will come soon. It's like we just carry on with our lives. So all ten of these bridesmaids fall asleep, which is okay. And then they're woken up. The groom is here. The groom is here. Think of the excitement. Think of, think of the excitement. We went to a wedding yesterday. Think of the excitement of a wedding. And this isn't just a couple of people. This is not just kind of groups. You know, these awkward weddings where there's like 10 groups of people that kind of mesh together for a day. This is the whole community. 
have come out in the night. And the groom is walking up the hill. And he's coming to his bride. And there is light. And everyone is welcoming him with their lamps. So when it says that five people, five of the bridesmaids had forgotten the oil, this isn't a kind of like, oops. This isn't a kind of like, oh, that's a shame. This is totally disrespectful. What a way to welcome the groom on his big day in darkness. Couldn't even be bothered to bring oil. And you needed oil for your lamp. Lamps used to last about 15 minutes without oil, so you needed to have your oil with you. And this isn't a parable about being nice. You know, it's not like the ones that had oil are going to be saying, oh, you know, I'll give you some of mine. This was being prepared, and they were totally underprepared. Why? Because they weren't truly waiting for the groom. They appear to be waiting for the groom. And they're not welcoming him. They're not celebrating with him. They're not even celebrating with their friend, the bride. Truth is, they never really cared. So, they're told, go off and buy oil. Go off and buy oil. So they run off. They go into the night. They now have to wake up a seller. They have to buy the oil. And by the time they've done all that, what's happened? They've been married and they've returned to the father's house. For the party. Can we come in? We're here. Groom goes to meet them. Did you hear in the passage what was said? Do not know you. I do not know you. This is a community event. This is now his wife's some of their closest friends. These are the bridesmaids. I do not know you. What does this, what does this mean for us? None of us are going to be invited to a wedding at one o'clock in the morning in total darkness and have to make sure we have our batteries for our torches. So what is it? What, you know, how do you grapple with this, and, I, and I've thought of three things that I think I'm trying to work through. The first is this, that you and I, we shouldn't just do religious things. We shouldn't just do religious things. My family and I, we went on a, a Christian house party last uh, two weeks ago, and it was, it was fine. And it was nice. And, 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 and basically what these things are, it's kind of a hundred people that kind of go away and there's, there's, a bit of, there's a speaker and you just play with your kids and, and, it, and it's really nice. And, and, and one of the things is when I have Sundays off, I'm really passionate about going to communion. Okay, for me, that's my kind of, my Sunday off, I have five a year, this is my big moment. So I sneak off to the local church for the eight o'clock BCP communion. That's Book of Common Bread. I'm so excited. I'm like, oh, I'm going to be refreshed and inspired. And I go to this quiet, and there's a couple of us. And, and then I realize why I'm there. Why am I here? 
Why am I here? Is it so I can say to everyone when I go back, oh, I had communion today. Did you? No, I'm joking. And I thought about it, and I was there at this, and I was like, why am I here? Is it generally to be transformed more into the likeness of Christ? Is it to know Christ better? Is it to prepare myself for Christ's return? Or am I just doing something? And so that's a question we can all ask ourselves. Every single part of this church, every single service, we all need to ask ourselves, do we just do religious things to appear to be waiting for Christ? Or do we do things because we are truly waiting for Christ's return? Number two, the Great Commission. Before Christ ascended back into heaven, he tells his disciples to go out and to declare the name of Jesus among the nations. Are we doing that in our circle of influence, in our homes, in our workplaces? We don't have to be doing this all the time, but it's an indicator, isn't it? If we don't tell anyone, does that mean we're a here to be waiting for Christ or are we truly waiting for Christ? And finally, number three, to be part of Christ's body now. How do we show that we're truly waiting rather than appear to be waiting? Well, we, we are part of the body of Christ. That we serve, that we love, that we support, that we encourage one another, that we love one another, that we grow together, that we invest time and energy and effort in one another because we are now the body of Christ, waiting for Christ's ultimate return. And it's very easy for, and I'm guilty of this, to the nth degree that I have surface level relationships with people. Because I just go, oh, these are just people, actually, Christ is, you know. But actually, he has a body on earth, and we are it. If you'd like to think through, maybe, how can, I, how can I grapple with one of these three things? Or maybe other things. Do grab someone next to you, or prayer afterwards. As we work through this question, are we truly waiting for Christ's return? Or do we appear to be waiting for Christ's return? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are Lord over all. That you will return and you will put right every wrong. And I pray that you would help each and every one of us as we grapple with how we can be truly and wholeheartedly waiting for your return. Amen.